Hello and welcome to episode number 188 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. I hope you're doing well. In this episode, we're going to hear from Nessi Altaras, author of A Privilege That Cannot Be Bought, Jews of Turkey and Citizenship Restitution from Portugal and Spain, published by the Istanbul-based Libra Books. The book weighs up the motivations among Turkish Jews applying for Spanish and Portuguese citizenship in recent years after the two countries both allowed descendants of Jews expelled from the Iberian Peninsula after 1492 to reclaim citizenship. Sephardic Jews famously moved in large numbers to the Ottoman Empire after that expulsion and they maintained a lively, if sometimes fragile, presence in Ottoman territories over subsequent centuries. But in Turkey today, there are thought to be only just over 15,000 Turkish Jewish citizens remaining and schemes like citizenship restitution by Spain and Portugal have been thought to pose a further challenge to that community's long-term presence in Turkey. Altaras's book is based on first-hand research with some of the thousands of Turkish Jews who applied for Spanish or Portuguese citizenship. It finds that their motivations were overwhelmingly practical in nature, rather than being underpinned by any profound cultural or emotional pull factor. We talk about all that, as well as Nessie's own application process to Spain and his work as an editor at the website of Leramos in our conversation. But before we get started, don't forget you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, and you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders, and ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Nessie Altaras. By 2015, both Spain and Portugal had formalized the process by which Sephardic Jews could apply for restitution of citizenship. So I started by asking him to explain the background of how and why both countries introduced those laws at that time. I'll roll back a little bit further back than the precursors even, and maybe remind listeners about the transition to democracy that both Portugal and Spain experienced around the same time. 
And really with the arrival of democracy and the end of the dictatorships of Salazar and Franco, both countries were in a position to look back at their history and also to reconceive themselves and reconceive themselves in a way that allowed them to integrate into a European memory culture. But those two things together, both the democratic reckoning and specifically trying to integrate into a European culture, brought an interest in reconciliation with Sephardic Jews and a discussion of the expulsion edicts and the problem of the converso, the new Christians, as they were called at the time. And we see this starting in the 90s, more directly in Spain, and I would say maybe more impactfully for Sephardic communities in other countries. Certainly, this is the case for the Turkish population. They're not really hearing about stuff going on in Portugal as much. And the first step would be King Juan Carlos's visit to the Madrid synagogue in 1992, where he expressed regret about what had happened between the Kingdom of Spain and Jews. So that really was the first point of something might happen, something might change. And we see throughout the late 90s and early 2000s, these discussions get more and more commonplace, where Spanish society and the Spanish government is discussing that there should be some sort of step towards reconciliation with Sephardic Jews. And this culminates in what I call a legal innovation by a handful of enterprising lawyers, mostly in Spain, to say, okay, how about we use the previous philo-Sephardic or philo-Semitic citizenship paper precedent set in the 1920s and 30s that had since been sunset with the Franco regime and argue that Sephardic Jews should get special consideration in cabinet decision citizenship. And that's what I call the esoteric process in Spain, whereby Jews mostly from Venezuela and Turkey, but also a few other countries, are able to say, I'm Sephardic, my family's originally from Spain, and that's why I request Spanish citizenship. Here's all the documentation showing that I'm someone without a criminal background, someone who can financially support themselves, perhaps, and someone who is Sephardic, which, you know, is quite difficult to prove by paper trail if you're trying to go all the way back to the 1500s, but simpler if you're if you're trying to just say, I'm a member of a Sephardic community now, and that is evidence enough of my exilic descent. And the Spanish cabinet, one by one, had approved a few of these people at first, studying in 2007 is what I found. And later on, we see hundreds, if not thousands, to a degree that people kept checking the official government bulletin every Friday to see if there was a cabinet decision made about their citizenship status, because this was not an official process. So there's no formalized portal or application procedure or appeals process. It was really more of a shot in the dark where you give a lawyer somewhere between 10 and 20,000 euros per person. So for a family of four or five, that's quite a lot of money when you're talking about someone who is living and working in Venezuela or Turkey. And it was the 2015 laws that formalized this process. And we see Portugal beat Spain to the punch by passing the law in 2013 to start in 2015. So it came into effect in 2015 and immediately the Spanish government said, okay, we can't let Portugal be the one to come up with this first. So we'll also start our own law in 2015. So after years of mulling over and talking over details and so on, they also passed a law that formalized the process. But once the process was formalized, it also came with approval of all the pending applications. So some 4,700 and a huge chunk of them were applications from Turkey as the applications from Venezuela had been given priority in the before 2012 period. So that meant basically a, a quarter, perhaps, 
of all Jews in Turkey became Spanish citizens. And that number just kept steadily rising over the next few years. But the Spanish formal process also meant that the new applicants would have to pass a, a language test and a citizenship test, which was created by this law. Spain had not had up to that point a citizenship test, whereas the Portuguese law did not expect either Portuguese proficiency or a citizenship test. So even though application costs had now fallen well below a few thousand euros, the vast majority of new applicants tended to take the Portuguese option. And what I show is that there's also quite a significant number of people who took both. So that's a long-winded way of setting the stage, I guess, for what the laws are. And we're going to come on later to talk about, you know, what were the motivations behind people applying and what you found from your research. But you mm -hmm. personally were among the applicants. Could you just talk about that? You know, when did you apply and why? Personally, yeah. what motivated you? So it's interesting because when the laws were first passed, my family were among the people who got automatic approval because my parents had applied in the late 2000s as well in a shot in the dark way, along with some of their friends. And they hadn't heard anything for close to a decade, basically. And all of a sudden they received this news. Yet I personally was excluded from this approval because I had become a legal adult by that time. So my brother and my parents were approved and I had to go through the new process. And I didn't even think about Portugal at the time. I hadn't even heard about this option. And I'd taken Spanish in school. So I, you know, geared up on Duolingo, took the language test, took the citizenship test. Kind of ironically, to complete my citizenship application, I got a tourist visa to travel to Spain to meet with a notary. And then I was able to finally get approved, swear allegiance to the king, as everyone is required to do, and was issued my first Spanish passport. And of course, the main, the main motivation for me was what I describe for most of the people that I've talked to is ease of travel, the possibility of easy relocation for work and other economic opportunities, and also this idea that having just a Turkish passport is uncertain, does not provide certainty for the future. And as you mentioned in the first answer, Spain is actually a bit more difficult than Portugal, I think because of the language requirement. I mean, was the whole process more complicated or easier than you expected, personally? Um, it Maybe I would say it was easier than I expected. It really is. Well, I mean, this is what the title of the book kind of alludes to. It's a way of receiving citizenship that does not take too much effort or too much money. And of course, there's a relative case there. Portugal is much, much simpler because of the lack of tests. But really, you're collecting documentation that you would need to renew an existing passport, plus some sort of proof of your Sephardic identity, which for applicants from Turkey is quite simple, because during the esoteric process, these enterprising lawyers were able to convince the chief rabbinate of Turkey to create a sort of certificate of membership in the Sephardic community. And that serves as proof enough that basically the Spanish Jewish community, which also was delegated some authority, and the Portuguese Jewish authorities, which are delegated even more authority in that country, kind of delegate the work of confirmation to the chief rabbinate of Turkey when it comes to applicants from Turkey. So if the chief rabbinate of Turkey says, yes, these people are Sephardic, it is basically unquestioned. And if I'm not mistaken, the application process, it's not like automatic. It's not like you apply and then, you know, within a particular time frame, you're definitely going to get it. There is a period of waiting and takes a, a few years in some oh, cases. Certainly. Is that right? Yes. 
from when I sent all my documentation to when I got my passport was a little over two years. Yeah. And I had to, you know, go back and forth with many, many consulates and embassies and had to travel to Spain personally. Uh, so really, that was, I think, the the big slowdown. You have to go to Spain to meet with a notary, whereas for Portugal, you can basically complete the entire process from Turkey. You might have to go to Ankara, but that's quite a bit easier. So you went the hard way. You got Spanish citizenship. And uh, in yeah. the end, now you're a Spanish citizen. I mean, how mm-hmm. how did you feel when you reached the end of that process and swearing allegiance um, to the king? What was that like? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting. I didn't really think about it too deeply beforehand, and now I have it and use it in a you know in ways that are convenient. You basically you know enter Europe like you're taking the subway, swipe your passport in, and that's quite nice. The privileges of European citizenship definitely are visible now, and yet the specificity of Spain, despite speaking Spanish, feels distant. And some of that has to do with how new citizens like myself like interact with the Spanish government because our only interaction is the consulates basically because the rates of relocation are virtually zero. Maybe like 20, 30 people who received citizenship through this process have moved to Spain from Turkey out of many thousands, especially in Istanbul, I find, but in other cities as well, (laughs) the consular treatment of new citizens is uh, less than cordial is how I'll put it. So that definitely does not inspire any sort of belonging or like the way they make voting difficult, even alienated people from even trying is what I've I've discovered. So turning to your research now, you conducted it in 2021 with 29 people who went through this application process, 15 women and 14 men aged 20 to 80. So how did your personal experience chime with with the subjects of your research? You talked a bit before about how, you know, you were applying basically for practical reasons. And according to the book, that was pretty much a, a general experience, really. That's what pretty much everybody applying was motivated by, the practical, hard-nosed aspect of applying rather than any kind of emotional attachment. Yes, exactly. And even more interestingly, I would say I found that even when people expressed a cultural connection or uh, interest in Spain, they compartmentalized that completely from their application procedure. More than a few people, way more than I expected, had past experience with modern Spanish, not only Ladino, but modern Spanish that they had taken in school or had taken classes independently. And even those people did not connect their application process with their interest in Spanish culture or Spanish language. Many applicants had traveled to Spain uh, years before this process even existed. They thought Spanish people even looked like them, spoke like them, walked like them. There was a lot of identification from many people I spoke to, and yet this was completely unconnected from the desire to have an EU passport. Only one person of the people I spoke to said that for them, the cultural motivations were a part of why they applied. Not that this is a representative sample, but it was quite low. And something I expected that did not pan out was language ability in modern Spanish and Ladino tracking with interest in cultural motivations. And that was not the case. One person I spoke to, it was a non-applicant, and he was the one with the highest level of Ladino proficiency. And the person who expressed cultural interest did not have Spanish skills, but his spouse had taken Spanish classes for many years and spoke Spanish, and yet she did not express cultural motivations. 
And you talk in the book very interestingly about this idea of performing Turkishness and how mm. a lot of the people that you spoke to were very keen to emphasize that they weren't, quote, disloyal to Turkey. And you describe that as a kind of desire to perform Turkishness, even to somebody, you know, a researcher like you, who's part of the in-group, essentially. And you talk about how mm. this underscores the extent to which Jewish loyalty to Turkey is under constant questioning. Could you just uh, dig into that a bit? You know, what's behind that sentiment? Absolutely. We can look kind of to the previous era where these like protection papers, these sub-citizenship statuses were being given to Sephardic Jews by Portugal and Spain and Italy and France in some cases in the early 1900s. And at that point in the 20s, especially in Turkey, there was a barrage of Turkish media coverage saying Jews are like taking interests in Spain. They're taking Spanish papers. They're speaking Spanish still at home, by which they mean Ladino. And this is all a sign of disloyalty. So accusation of disloyalty to Jews or dual loyalty, as it's often known in other countries as well, is quite common and is a famous anti-Semitic trope. And in Turkey, it had often taken the shape of loyalty to Spain. And after the creation of Israel, often loyalty to Israel. And there were some rumblings of this in Turkish media after 2015, that all these Jews taking citizenship from Spain and Portugal are more loyal to those countries and less loyal to Turkey, though not at the level of the 1920s coverage at all. So I think this was thankfully not a major outburst of accusations of disloyalty, but it's something that Jews from Turkey are practiced in, that we know that this accusation could be brought up and preemptively position ourselves against it. And we see this most clearly in the response of the chief rabbi of Turkey, Zakaleva, when he was asked, are you going to take Portuguese citizenship as he was on a visit in Portugal? And his answer was, no, I'm a Turkish Jew. So the expectation that dual citizenship is counter to being a Turkish Jew is, is a performance of loyalty in itself is what I argue, that Turkish Jews are so loyal that they would never take up a different citizenship, is what the chief rabbi is implying. And yet thousands and thousands of his congregants are applying with certificates issued by his own institution. Uh, You said at the start that now about a quarter of the Turkish Jewish population has citizenship of either Spain or Portugal. Now it must be much higher. That was probably in 2016 or 17. Now oh, okay. it must be like close to half, maybe. Wow. And you also talk in the book really interestingly about how a lot of people, despite getting this citizenship, haven't decided to relocate at this mm-hmm. point. That might be a surprise to some people, especially these days when we're talking about, you know, there's increasing talk of a brain drain from Turkey. It seems like every other conversation that you have here is with somebody who is applying or thinking about applying to, to leave Is that still the case that, you know, people who have taken these passports are now still happy in Istanbul or is that beginning to shift now? I would say for the, it's a, there's an age breakdown. So for the people I spoke to who are past their forties, I think the purpose of this passport is ease of travel and providing their kids with opportunity for relocation. So them not moving is not surprising. They also had never expressed interest in moving and often would not have the either the financial resources or the necessary work background or academic background to function in a new society, especially at that age. Whereas for the younger people, we do see them make the 
point that like I have no plans now, but I could be on the move thanks to this passport. And yet we don't see relocation to Spain or Portugal uh, directly. So of the people I spoke to, two people had spent time in Spain, but both have left after six months for one, a year and a half or two years for the other. So that maybe has to do with the economic conditions of Spain and Portugal or, you know, Southern Europe more generally. I think there's now more and more people who have used their new citizenship maybe as a way to relocate to the Netherlands or some to Northern Italy and maybe some to France, but almost none to Spain and Portugal. And there might be some listeners drawing a conclusion that, you know, Turkey for over 20 years now has had a Islamist government that is increasingly conservative culturally and anti-Semitism remains pretty widespread. And people might naturally expect that that would result in people searching for the exit door, essentially. Mm -hmm. Is that a motivating factor as well behind people applying? Or is it more a sense of, as you said before, a kind of insurance policy? There is a a last resort if we need it. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, what I found is that there was no one who was applying for this with the intention of using it for immediate relocation. It was always a desire for increased protection in Turkey, which is interesting that some applicants expressed, oh, if we have trouble, often to mean anti-Semitic trouble, in Turkey, having a second citizenship could be useful as a protection of some sorts. Or if there's trouble, again, in an anti-Semitic sense, that they could relocate to Spain in that in that case. So just in case our insurance policy uh, was a phrase that was repeated by every single person I spoke to. And it's also common generally among people who receive citizenships like this through restitution or through kinship ties. So this is not a Jewish specific phenomenon. This is also a phenomenon of economic insecurity. We see this in Italian citizenship recipients in Brazil and Argentina, for example, that they express por las dudas just in case. That also chimes a bit with my kind of experience of just seeing, you know, this latest pickup in the, quote, brain drain here Mm -hmm. in Istanbul, because it seems like, you know, for years there's been talk of this happening. And previously it was very much motivated by politics. You know, a lot of people leaving either had to leave or wanted to leave just because things got, you know, too much, particularly after the coup attempt. But it seems like in the last year or two, because of the economy just tanking so badly, that has really triggered people who are basically apolitical to look mm-hmm. for a way out. And it just seems like really striking how it's when the economy goes upside down. That's really a major trigger beyond political issues. And it seems like your research kind of reifies that as well. It's really practical concerns rather than political ones that ultimately kind of guide people in their decisions when they're talking about where they're going to live, where they're going to be a citizen for and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And that's the case, certainly, with Jewish immigration. Much of the Jewish community is, as you said, apolitical, I would say, expressly apolitical. And that's why the political or the anti-Semitic reasoning does not really lead to immigration. Turkey, like the Jewish community, experienced the worst anti-Semitic violence for many years in 2003 with the twin bombing attacks on, on two synagogues, and it did not inspire a wave of immigration at all. So that's that's a sort of shocking fact, perhaps. But we have seen way more immigration, as you said, since the coup attempt in 2016. There's a recent Avdar Mos article by Muzaffar all about this, that each year, increasingly, a few hundred Jews have been moving to Israel. And for a community of under 15,000, a few hundred younger people moving each year is sucking out the lifeblood. That's like threatening the livelihood of the community, basically. And it's almost entirely motivated by economics. 
as with the citizenship application, these political or anti-Semitic concerns are present, but as background. And you mentioned there, Avleramoz, I believe you're an editor there. It was set yes. up in 2015, so it's a website focusing basically on uh, Jewish life in Turkey, anti-Semitism. Could you just talk about the kind of founding of that website as well? You know, what first of all, I suppose, what does the word mean, Avleramoz? And what really was the thinking behind the website? What was the aim when you when you set it up? So Pasar publishing in 2016 and Avleramos was meaning let's talk in Ladino from Avlar. Avleramos was founded by Jews and non-Jews who were interested in recording and countering the widespread anti-Semitism in Turkish media of all stripes, really, pro-government and anti-government. We see we unfortunately see anti-Semitic publications in both, though not often at the same rate. And that also included Holocaust education, which is sorely lacking in Turkey, where Holocaust denial is still, I would say, socially acceptable in many quarters, and just lack of knowledge is extremely common. Then over time, it also came to include just general education about Jewish culture and a space for Jews to discuss political issues and social issues and for Jews to participate in public life in Turkey, really, to uh, be citizens of the public square beyond just the performance of loyalty, but, you know, as individuals with opinions that differ from other Jews. And how's it going so far? You know, over five years on, is it as you hoped? Yeah, well, we we just turned seven last week, and uh, we still have a growing slate of writers, both Jews and non-Jews, growing slate of followers, and we get read by thousands of people every day, and I, I find it to be rewarding, yeah. That was Nessi Autoras. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 188. Don't forget, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, 3 euros or £2.50 per episode. You can also rate Turkey Book Talk or write a positive review on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.